Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. As you're turning, let me express my gratitude to you for uh, bringing me here. First contact was with Al, who uh, wrote to me and inquired about these things, and then Pastor Nick uh, got involved, and uh, you've all been wonderfully hospitable. Thank you for that. I've enjoyed this. I've Averaged about 100 airplanes a year for 22 years. I've been uh, I've preached in 48 states, but this is my first time to Baton Rouge. I've uh, been several places in Louisiana, but uh, first time here. So it's been a thunderous welcome uh, here, and I appreciate that very much. I also want to bring greetings to you from my boss, uh, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Dr. Al Moeller. And I know he would want me to express my gratitude to you for your church's gifts to the cooperative program. Every time you give to this church, a portion of the money decided by the church makes its way to the Southern Baptist Cooperative Program. And what a lot of people don't know is that that money first goes to your state convention here in Louisiana. And then in its annual session, the state convention votes on the budget for the state convention and determines how much money stays in the state to do missions work here in the state, support work on uh, campuses and start new churches and so forth, and how much of the money then goes on to the central fund of the Southern Baptist Cooperative Program. I'm not sure exactly what the percentage is here in Louisiana, but in most churches across convention, it's roughly uh, 50-50. And so uh, that money then from the 45,000 Southern Baptist churches who voluntarily give whatever they decide to give makes its way to the Central Fund of the Southern Baptist Convention Cooperative Program, and next month, at the annual session of the Southern Baptist Convention, the messengers from all the churches who attend vote on the budget for the whole Southern Baptist Convention. Historically, half of that budget goes to our more than our, our almost 5,000 missionaries in more than 185 countries of the world. 25% of that budget generally goes to the or annually goes to the more than 5,000 home missionaries we have in all 50 United States. That's supplemented each year by the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for our foreign missionaries and the Annie Armstrong Easter offering for the home missionaries. But then about 20% of the budget for the whole Southern Baptist Convention goes to your six Southern Baptist seminaries. Uh, the oldest and largest of which is in Louisville, where I'm privileged to teach on your behalf. And, of course, you know you have... Uh, seminary in New Orleans where your pastor attended. What you may not know is that one out of five seminary students in America, you add up all the seminary students and all the seminaries of all kinds, the 5,000 Catholic seminary students and their seminaries, Methodist seminary students, all seminary students of all kinds, one out of five is in one of your six seminaries, which means God can call someone from this church to the mission field. God can call someone from this church to be a worship pastor, preacher, biblical counselor. And they, can, they may not have much money, but they can get a first-rate seminary education because there are 45,000 churches like this one voluntarily giving to help support those seminaries. I've spoken in seminaries where it costs the students there 10 times what it costs the students at Southern Seminary for what, in my opinion, is not as good an education. Now, you know, the costs are about the same. The salaries are roughly the same. The electricity is about the same. But for the students in our seminaries, the costs are greatly reduced because there are 45,000 churches like this one voluntarily giving to support the work of those seminaries. All of which is to say, thank you for paying my salary. 
There's a wonderful promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, where the Bible says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How do you know if God is for you? That's a very important question when you consider the alternatives, right? So how do you know if God supports you or whether He does not? If you want to get married, but nothing ever works out, does that mean God is against you? Or what if you marry the person of your dreams? Does that mean God is for you? But then what if that marriage breaks apart? Does that mean God is against you? If you want to have children, but you, you can't, does that mean God is against you? And if you have many wonderful children, all turn out well, does that mean God is for you? If you can't get a job or you lose your job, does that mean God is against you? And what if you have unprecedented job success? Does that mean God is for you? What if you are always having money trouble? Does that mean God is against you? And what if you win the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes? Does that mean that God is for you? How do you know whether God is for you or whether God is against you? Well, in the final analysis, none of the things that I've just mentioned are any indication one way or the other. For all the bad things that I've mentioned have happened to those God is for. And all the good things I've mentioned have happened to those God is dead set against. So how do you know whether God is for you or whether God is against you? Well, ultimately, we as believers in Christ can know that God is for us because of what the Bible says God has done for us. Not because of changing circumstances. But the unchanging Word of God is what tells us whether God is for us or not. Now, in my text this morning, Romans 8.31, there are two sentences. First sentence says, what then shall we say to these things? Very important phrase there, to these things. And then it's as though the Apostle Paul strokes his chin for a minute and thinks about these things. And these things convinces him and ought to convince us as believers in Christ that God is for us. But then the second sentence begins with the word if. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now you know as one of your seminary professors, I'm duty bound to mention Greek at least once while I'm here today, right? But it really makes a difference in this case. That second sentence begins with the word if. Now in the Greek language in which the New Testament was first written, they had several completely different words, all translated if. It's sort of like, as many of us have heard, the Eskimos have something like 16 different words for snow. They have a different word for heavy, wet snow, another word for dry, powdery snow, and so forth. Well, the Greek language had several different words for if. In English, we have to do the same thing by the context. So, for example, a man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if it doesn't rain. And we understand, well, if it's a day like today, he's not going. But if it's a sunny day, he'll go fishing. But another man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if the sun comes up. He's going fishing regardless of what the weather does tomorrow. Well, it's that second sense of if that we have at the beginning of verse 2. It's almost translatable as since God is for us. 
But what was it that convinced Paul and ought to convince us as believers in Christ that God is for us? Well, as I said, it's what he thinks about from the first sentence. He says, what should we say to these things? And as he thinks about these things, these things convince Paul and ought to convince us as believers in Christ that God is for us. So what are these things? Well, in one sense, it's the whole book of Romans up to this point. But in the immediate context, it's the things he's just been talking about in the previous paragraph. So, for example, we know from verses 26 and 27 that God is for us because of the Holy Spirit he gives to us and what the Holy Spirit does for us. Look there in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts, that's God the Father, knows what the mind of the Spirit, Holy Spirit indwelling the believer, uh, is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When you don't know what to pray, you don't know what God's will is in a matter. Should you go or not? Should you do this or that? You don't know. The Bible says here that God the Holy Spirit is praying for you. Because he recognizes we don't always know what to pray as we are. We don't know, always know, know what's best. We don't know the future. We don't know all things as God does. And yet we're still commanded to pray in all those things. And we want to pray in those things. But even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit of God is praying for us. And in fact, even in those times when you can't pray, you ever been there? Your heart is so heavy, like lead in your chest, all you can do is cast yourself across the bed and just sort of groan Godwardly. Oh, God, is all you can say. Or maybe because you're in such physical pain or you're under sedation or medication such that you literally can't put two thoughts together in your head to pray. But maybe that's when you most desperately need prayer. Your heart is so broken or you're so physically in pain, you literally cannot pray. But you've never needed prayer more in your life. God is not in heaven wringing his hands thinking, well, bless her heart. Bless his heart. If they could only utter something, if they could just put some request before me, I'd have something to work with, but I can't because they can't pray. What am I going to do? No, no. God is so good and God is so great that when we most desperately need prayer and we can't pray, he says the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And he does so according to the will of God. It says as if he could pray any other way. And Paul says, you know what? If God will do that, God is for me. If he'll pray for me when I don't know what to pray, if he'll pray for me when I cannot pray, God is for me. That wasn't the only thing. We also know that God is for us because of the very famous next verse, Romans 8, 28. And we know, have you ever noticed that before? In this verse, and we know, we're going to talk about how, how do we know? And we know that for those who love God, not for everybody, but for those who love God, all things work together for good. For not everybody, but for those who are called according to his purpose. You know, as an aside, it's been my observation that we don't seem to want to speak of Romans 8.28 as much. 
And I think I understand why. I think we've all seen people just sort of blithely throw out Romans 8.28 to hurting people. Insensitively and in untimely ways, giving Romans 8.28 to hurting people. Romans 8.28 is, is not to be given to someone who's on the raw edge of pain. Maybe they're still angry at God. They're crying, why? And to give them Romans 8.28 doesn't help. Romans 8.28 is for people who have gotten over the initial shock or raw edge of pain and are sincerely asking why, not out of anger and rage. But they're really questioning why. That's the time when Romans 8.28 is, is so precious to us. And we, we don't want to... Abandon it because some people use it in an untimely way or an insensitive way. But have you noticed how it begins with, and we know? When do we use Romans 8.28? When do we cling to it as a promise in our own lives? In the worst moments in our lives, right? And Paul says, in those worst moments of life, that's when we know that God is causing all things to work together for our ultimate good and for His glory. But he begins with, and we know that. How do we know that in those times? Well, have you connected it with the two verses we just looked at? In those times when you don't know what to pray, in those times when you can't pray, when is it the worst moments of your life, right? The worst moments of your life, Lord, what, what in the world do I pray? Are you maybe because you're in such pain, you can't pray. He is praying for you, it says. The Holy Spirit himself intercedes for you. And what percentage of the prayers of the Holy Spirit do you think are answered? I would imagine it's pretty close to the percentage of the prayers of Jesus that are answered, wouldn't you? And so in the worst moments of life, we know that's when he's praying for us, and we know his prayers are always answered. That's why we know and can cling to Romans 8, 28, in the worst moments of life, that God is causing all things, even in those situations, to work out for our ultimate good and his glory, because that's when we know the Holy Spirit is praying for us. That's how we know that Romans 8, 28 is true. Notice that it does claim all things, everything in the life of a believer, even evil things. Have you come across the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8, 28? It's Psalm 119, 91. Psalm 119, 91 says, For all things are your servants, all things. Even the devil, Martin Luther said, yes, he's the devil, but he's God's devil. And he's on God's chain. And as we learn from the book of Job at the beginning, he cannot touch us. Though he can do horrible things to us, he cannot touch us unless God permits it to be so. All things are God's servants. Therefore, all things in the life of a Christian must pass through the filter of his hands and his will. And so that they work together in his almighty hands. It says they work together for our ultimate good and for his glory. And that is true about all things. So nothing in the life of a Christian can be evaluated alone. Nothing stands alone in the life of a Christian. You can't look at anything and say, that is evil. It's pure evil. There's nothing good in that. And God says, amen. This verse is not calling us to put on rose-colored glasses and see the world through some false filter. It's not telling us to look for the silver lining in every cloud. Some clouds don't have silver linings. Some things are pure evil. And when you say that of something, God often says, amen, you're right. 
but we cannot evaluate anything by itself. Nothing stands alone in the life of a Christian because all things work together in the hands of an almighty God who performs a divine alchemy and turns even evil things ultimately into our, our ultimate good and for His glory. Paul says, if God will do that, God is for me. If He'll take everything in my life, even the worst things that have ever happened, and cause me to bless Him forever through that, then God is for me. All things, even evil things, God takes and works together with other things. You take too much sodium, it will kill you. You take chloride, it will kill you. You work them together and in proper proportions. Salt can be beneficial. God can take things that can kill you. God can take evil things but work them together in His almighty hand so that the result is we praise Him forever for doing that. All things, it says. Certainly it doesn't mean all things are good. Let's get that clear. But that He works together through all things. Even the worst things that have ever happened. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? I'm sure if we had the time or the transparency to hear from everyone in a gathering of this size, we would hear about things that have happened to some people in this room that somebody probably should be put in prison for, or worse. And I've lived long enough to have had some pretty awful things happen to me, near death from cancer, the death of family, friends, and loved ones. pretty awful things like many people in this room. But the Bible calls us to believe that even in the worst things that have ever happened, the Christian can say, and only the Christian can say, and only the Christian can say by faith, not by sight, and sometimes through tears and clenched teeth, only a Christian can say by faith that if I knew everything God knew, and I had God's heart, that's important. If I knew everything God knew and I had God's heart, God's heart, I would have allowed everything in my life that God has allowed. And like I said, that's, that's not an easy thing to say because there are a lot of things in my life right now. If I could snap my fingers and remove them, I could tell you ten things I'd like out of my life right now. And I pray for them to be removed daily, but God doesn't. But this text calls me to believe that God is causing all those things to work together for my ultimate good and for His glory. I may not see it ever in this world, but there will come a day, the Bible says, I will praise God for the very worst things that have ever happened to me. Only a Christian can say that by faith, often through tears and clenched teeth, because it has to be by faith alone. But that's the greatness of the God that's presented to us in this passage. Now, who said this? The man who wrote those very words endured far more suffering than any of us. Remember this man said over in 2 Corinthians, five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. 195 times he felt the leather whip across his back for the sake of the gospel. How many times have you? He said, I have been beaten times without number. I don't even remember how many times I have been beaten for the sake of the gospel. Beaten with rods sometimes. How many times have you been beaten for the sake of the gospel? He said, I've been stoned and left for dead. It was in Lystra 
We're not sure. It may have been miraculous. He may have actually been not only left for dead, and they dragged him out of town because he had died, but God raised him up. It was a miraculous sudden raising, even if he was just near death. How many times have you been stoned for the sake of the gospel? He said, I've spent a whole night and day in, in the sea thinking I was going to drown. I've been in danger in rivers like that. I've been in danger in, in the country. I've been in danger in the cities where I was persecuted. I had to be let down over a wall in, the basket, in a basket at night. They were trying to kill me. I've been in danger from wild animals. And he goes on and on and on. And this is the man who says, God caused this, all of these things to work together for my ultimate good and for his glory. Because this is also the man, remember, who tells in 2 Corinthians 12, he had the ultimate human experience. He was permitted, he said, I don't know if I was in the body or not, but God permitted him to go to heaven, to see heaven. And he said, I, I, I saw things I was not, and heard things I'm not permitted to, to speak. So unfortunately, like people in your day, I didn't get a book deal or a movie deal out of my trip to heaven. But I saw how it all ends up. I saw how glorious it is. And I want to tell you something. Having, having seen it, you're called to believe it by faith. God allowed me to see it with my eyes, but I've also suffered a lot more than you. And I want to tell you something. He writes it later in this chapter. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Did you get that? I've suffered way more than you. 195 times I've been whipped across my back, stoned and left for dead, beaten so many times I can't remember. But I've seen how it all ends up, and I'm telling you, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. That's who wrote Romans 8, 28. A man who suffered far more than we have, but who's seen how it all ends up. And he says, God is causing all of this stuff to work together in his almighty hands so that a divine alchemy happens in eternity. And I'm telling you, you will bless God forever for the worst things that have ever happened to you in this life. My first pastorate right out of seminary, I went to a little country church where I became the 17th pastor in 21 years at this little church, which is a statistic that tells me a million times more today than when I was 25. And my wife and I were there about 15 months, which is nearly a record at that church. But we endured five hospitalizations and three surgeries as a result of the stress of that 15 months. And both of us were told, you'll never be parents. You already heard in my introduction, that that's the way it was for 16 years, but the Lord gave us a baby and bifocals the same year. So we have a 23-year-old daughter and 11-month and 3-day-old grandson, which are the pictures right here you can line up afterwards to see. And I thought that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And that's what I would have said until about seven years ago. And something been going on since then. But I've had some pretty awful things happen. But sometimes, like that first church situation, the Lord allows us to live long enough to see why. Because he took us from there to a church in the suburbs of Chicago where I was a pastor for 15 years. And he turned our mourning into dancing, gave us a wonderful congregation there. And after I'd been there for a while, I, thought, I said, now I get it. That church in Chicago was looking for a pastor 
before I went to this other church. And if I had gone directly to Chicago, I think I would have ruined that church. I wasn't ready, so God put us through a pressure cooker for 15 months to get us ready to bless us for 15 years. And so I said, now I think I understand why we went through all that we did. And that's what I thought for many years until I began to teach on your behalf at a Southern Baptist Seminary in 1995. And now every day I look out on the faces of young men who are pastoring that same church, if you know what I mean. And it makes a world of difference to say, brother, I've been there. So now the greatest joy of my ministry life, teaching on your behalf at Southern Seminary, now I see why we had to go through that horrible situation. So there are some things in life, you live long enough and you say, I didn't understand it at the time, now I see why God allowed that to happen. And it's fairly easy to look into the future and to say, yes, I'm sure, out there in the future, whatever happens to me, God will bring glory through it. It'll be for my ultimate good and for His glory. And I can say that rather flippantly because I haven't experienced the pain of the future yet. You know what's really hard for me about Romans 8.28? It's believing that the promise of Romans 8.28 is true today. Because as I said, there are about 10 things in my life I pray every day God would remove. And if I could snap my fingers and remove them right now, they'd be out of my life. But God has chosen not to remove them from my life. Instead, he calls me to believe that through them I will bless him forever that he allowed them into my life. I can't see that yet. But God calls me to believe here that he is for me because he is taking everything that has ever happened to me, everything that will ever happen to me, and use it for my ultimate good and for his glory. The Apostle Paul says if God will do that, if he will take everything that ever happens to you, even the worst things that have ever happened to you, and doesn't just neutralize them so someday you can look forward to an existence where their memory is gone, the pain won't be there anymore, they can't hurt you anymore, oh, for such a day, for an eternity. No, no, it's better than that. We will actually praise God forever for everything that ever happens to us, including the worst things that have ever happened to us. As unimaginable as that is right now, Paul says, that's the kind of God we have. And if God will do that, if God is great enough and willing to take everything that ever happens to me, even the worst things that have ever happened to me, and to bless me through them forever, then God is for me. But that's not all. Then there is what is referred to sometimes as Paul's golden chain in verses 29 through 31, where he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers, many made like Jesus. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, these he also glorified. The Bible says here, if you were in Christ from eternity past, God foreknew you. And it means more than he just knew about you in advance. He knew decisions you would make in advance. It's a more intimate word than that. We could almost translate it as he foreloved you. He knew everything about you, every choice you would ever make, every sin you would ever commit. And he loved you anyway. And predestined you to become conformed to the image of his son. God has predestined all those in Christ to be made like Christ forever and ever. Not like Him in His 
divinity. We're not going to be little gods as the Mormons believe. Rather, we will be made like Christ in a sinless, perfect humanity, reflecting the glory of God from every pore and cell in our glorified bodies forever and ever. Now, if it said here we were predestined to become like angels, <coughs> we would have rejoiced forever that God would make us creatures that glorious. And if you'll kind of notice, that's what most people seem to believe. People seem to get the idea that when people go to heaven, they morph from humans into angels with angels' wings and all that. You know, we see it every Christmas. Clarence keeps trying to get those angels' wings from Jimmy Stewart, right? And you see drawings, cartoons of people in heaven. They're, they have long white robes and wings, right? Those are angels. Those aren't people. But if we knew God was going to predestine us to be a creature that glorious, we would have been astonished forever because over and over when angels appear to people on earth, that they, they fall on their faces. Twice in the book of Revelation, the apostle John had angels appear to him and he fell down and worshipped them. Now John knew better than that. John had a pretty good theology, don't you think? Especially by the time of the book of Revelation, he, know, he knows you don't worship angels, you worship God alone. And in fact, in both cases, they had to say, don't do that, worship God. And I'm sure as he struggled his feet, he said, I, I, I know, I know, I'm sorry, I just couldn't help myself. You're too glorious. Just in a 15-watt bulb version of their glory, he just reflexively fell on his face and worshiped them. If we knew God would make us creatures that glorious, we would rejoice forever. But folks, it's even better than that. He has predestined us to become conformed to the image of His Son. And it's even better than that. For those whom He predestined, it says, these He also called. With a kind of call that awakens the dead. With a kind of call that He gave when He walked into Lazarus' tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. If He hadn't said Lazarus, they all would have come forth. But He said, Lazarus, come forth. And he who was dead got up and came forth. Jesus was suddenly irresistibly beautiful to him. And what he freely wanted to do is come to Christ out of death and the grave. And that's what God does to all those who are in Christ. Like he did for me that Thursday night when I was nine years old. I'd been raised in church like many of you. I was taken from Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, nine months before I was born. And I'd heard the gospel thousands of times, I suppose, at least hundreds by then. But there was a Thursday night when a man is preaching from the Bible. And he preached how God created all things. And therefore, we were all accountable to God. He made me, and therefore, he had all rights over me. And he had told me how to live in his word. And I had broken his law, and I'd done so countless times. And I was accountable to him at the judgment. And there is a judgment, and there is a heaven, and there is a hell. But in his mercy, God sent Jesus who lived the life I could not live. He lived the perfect life, and he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for sinners like myself, and God accepted that sacrifice and raised Jesus from the dead, and now what I needed to do was repent and believe in Jesus. And through the gospel, God called me to himself that night like he had never done so before. He called me in a way he didn't call the boys on either side of me that night. He called me in a way that was unmistakable. With the same kind of call he called Lazarus. And he had no obligation to do so. I added nothing to the team. He didn't need me. But he called me in a, what theologians call a special call. Anytime the gospel goes forth, all who hear it are sincerely called to Christ.
but there is a special call that he gives when you realize he is calling you. And he's calling you like he has never called you before. And so he called you with no obligation. But he called you to himself if you are in Christ. And he didn't have to do it. He called you in a way that most people in the world never hear. But he called you. And these whom he called, it says, these he also justified. Which is far more than, if we may say it, the mere forgiveness of sins. As if we could even say the mere forgiveness of every sin you've ever committed in your life. But do you realize if you had never sinned in your life, if he forgave every one of your sins, but that's all, you still couldn't go to heaven. If you never sinned in your life, you couldn't go to heaven because it takes more to go to heaven than no sin. Having no sin just brings you to zero, to neutral, on a line that extends infinitely in this direction, minus one, minus two, minus three, and the line extends this direction, plus one, plus two, plus three, to infinity. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest theologian America's ever produced, said, Famously, my sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. And that's because he knew that we never go one second without sin. We never go one second, often not even conscious of it. But someone put it this way, if sin were blue, everything we ever did or said or thought, every motive would be some shade of blue, some would be a light blue, some would be a dark blue, but every word, deed, thought, or motive would be some shade of blue. Therefore, we never do anything. Even in our best moments, our best motives, you get up in the middle of the night to care for a sick child. You help some stranger on the side of the road. Even in our best moments, there is sin. Maybe we're unconscious of it. Maybe it's as simple as, well, I hope someone sees me do this, or I hope my wife appreciates this, or I hope somebody sees me do this. It may be nothing more than just, well, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do it. But there's some selfishness, some sin. Maybe it's a small percentage, but it's there in everything we ever say or do or motive, every deed. What does the Bible say? That even in our, even our righteousnesses are what? It's filthy rags compared to a holy God. We know our sins are filthy rags before God, but the Bible says even our righteousnesses are filthy rags because they're not perfect righteousness. In those moments when you say, this is righteousness and this is unrighteousness and I choose, I choose righteousness, good, it's what you ought to do. In some sense, God is pleased with that. When you say, this is obedience and this is disobedience and I choose, I choose obedience, Good, that's what you ought to do, it's what you ought to choose, and in some sense God is pleased, but the Bible says that even in our obedience, even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before a holy God. Compared to other people, perhaps better, but before a holy God, even our best deeds, even our obedience is imperfect, it's sinful. Someone said even our repentance needs to be repented of, even our tears need to be washed. And Edwards could say, my sins are infinite because I never go one second without sin. But multiplied by infinite because he knew every sin is a double sin. The greatest of all commandments, the Bible says, is to love God, right? With all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and your neighbors yourself. But whenever you're sinning, and when is that? Every moment. You're simultaneously breaking the greatest of all commandments. You're not loving God with all your heart. If you're sinning and we sin every moment, 
Therefore, every moment we're sinning, but we're breaking the greatest commandment every moment. So our sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. But if you had never sinned in your life, that just brings you back to zero, to neutral. And to go to heaven, you must have more than no sin. You must have perfect righteousness. And we have none. But there was a man. A man who came from heaven. A man who lived 33 years of perfect righteousness. Every single moment of his life, he loved God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength, his neighbor as himself. He perfectly kept the law of God. He never broke the law of God. And despite the constant onslaught of false accusations from the Pharisees, not for one second did he ever just get fed up with it and just kind of lose it for a moment, but get it under control again. Not for one second. 24-7. 33 years. Perfect righteousness. So Jesus earned heaven. So salvation by works Oh, you bet it is, but not yours. Someone had to work for your salvation, and Jesus worked 33 years. And that perfect life qualified him to be a substitute for lawbreakers like us. And he willingly offered himself as that sacrifice and substitute on the cross. And we know God accepted it because God raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of heaven from which he's going to come someday as judge and king over all. And the Bible says that great exchange took place then. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we, we the infinite sinners, might become zero, neutral. No, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When we believe into Christ, and that's what the word believe means. We don't just believe about Jesus. We believe into Christ. You've heard of being united with Christ by faith. We faith into Jesus. We believe into Jesus, and we are united with him by faith. And when that happens, God looks upon you as though you lived the life of Jesus. Think of that. God gives you credit for having lived the life of Jesus. God looks upon you as though you healed all those people. God looks upon you as though you spoke the words of Jesus. God looks upon you as though you had the perfectly pure heart of Jesus. And God looks upon you as though you had the perfectly pure mind of Christ. And on the cross, you know what Jesus got? He got credit for having lived my life. And you know what the perfectly pure Son of God got when he got credit for living my life? He got the atomic bomb of the wrath of God. That's what it means to be justified. God gives you credit for having lived the life of Jesus. Think of that. But there's more. It's even better than that. For it says, those whom he justified, these he also glorified, made like Christ in every way except his divinity, forever and ever. And notice this past tense here. In the mind of God, it's done. It's over. It's done. You are glorified in terms of the work is done. It is considered completed. It's future in our experience. It's done in the mind of God. So the Apostle Paul says, all right. He 
sends his Holy Spirit to pray for me when I can't pray. I don't know what to pray. I'm unable to pray, but he prays for me, the Spirit himself, and he prays according to the very will of God, which is always answered. And in the very worst moments of my life and everything in my life, but especially in the very worst moments, he takes all of these things and he doesn't just neutralize them someday so I can look forward to a day when I won't remember them, the pain will be gone. No, he actually takes everything in my life, even the worst things that ever happened, and transforms them by divine alchemy into gold for which I will bless him forever and ever and ever. And then, before the foundation of the world, knowing everything about me, every sin I would ever commit, he loved me anyway and predestined me, me, to be like Jesus. And then when I was his enemy, when I was dead in trespasses and sins, I had no interest in him. He called me and made Jesus irresistibly beautiful to me. He called me from the dead and called me when he had no obligation to do so and then gave me credit for having lived the whole life of Jesus and has ensured that I'm going to be like Christ forever and ever. What shall we say to these things? Well, we could say a lot to these things. But to the very least, we can say, God is for me. (laughs) If God will do that, God is for me. Well then, if that's so, answer me this. Why is my life so stinking hard? I mean, this sounds great on Sunday morning. You come to church, hear this great truth. God is for us. Amen. But you know, I have to go home after church, and life is hard at home. I have to go to work tomorrow. Life is hard at work. If God is for me, like you're telling me, why is my life so hard? Well, when it says here that God is for us, it doesn't say nothing is against us. In fact, the Bible says the whole world is against us. Jesus said, if the world hated me, the world will hate those who follow me. The world will hate you. The Bible says in 1 Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All, not just those who experience violent persecution in other places, but all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And to be a Christian in this world is like swimming upstream against the culture. And the current against us is getting harder every day, isn't it? With every 24-hour news cycle, it seems like it's harder and harder to follow Christ in this world. So the whole world is against a Christian in one sense. And the Bible says the flesh is against us. That as long as we are in this body, there is a part of us, there's something, there's a principle active within us that still finds sin attractive, that still is is influenced and drawn to temptation. The Bible calls that the flesh. And sometimes, because of that, we sin knowingly, willingly. We do so because we want to. And at that moment, we want sin more than we want righteousness and obedience. And the Bible says those choices sometimes make life hard. They lead to God's discipline. Hebrew says, which sometimes makes life hard. We make choices, sinful choices, that put scars on our bodies and scars on our relationships and make life hard. So there's a sin factory that beats in our chest that works against us. 
And then the devil is certainly against us. He made life harder for Job. He'll make life harder for us. But what the Apostle Paul is saying here, according to the late James Montgomery Boyce, is this. It's like Paul has an old-fashioned set of scales. And on one side, he's putting peanuts. He said, all right, who's against you? Well, my goodness, Paul, the whole world is against me sometimes. All right, put that peanut over there. Plunk. Anything else? Yeah, this sin factory that beats in my chest works against me all the time. You told us, Paul, the flesh wars against the spirit and spirit against the flesh, so we don't always do what we want to do. So sometimes my own heart works against me. All right, put that there. Plunk. Anything else? Well, the devil is sure against me. All right, put that peanut there. Plunk. Anything else? Well, yeah, I think my boss is against me. My teachers are against me. All right, put that there. Plunk, plunk. And then it's as though the Apostle Paul throws the anvil of God on the other side. Boom! If God is for us, who is against us? Yes, the world, the flesh, the devil, your boss, whoever. They're against you, but if God is for you, who are they? Who are they? And therefore, what he's ultimately saying here, regardless of who or what is against you, if God is for you, nothing or no one can thwart God's eternal plan for you. No matter who or what is against you, if God is for you, Nothing or no one can thwart his eternal plan for you. From before the foundation of the world, he knew all about you and every sin you would ever commit. Nevertheless, he predestined you to be like Christ, called you to Christ, gave you credit for living the life of Christ, will make you like Christ forever and ever, and nothing and no one can thwart that. Your place in heaven is secure. Because, my friend, if you could lose your salvation, you would. You already would have lost it if you could lose it. But God has so changed your heart and so worked on your behalf from before the foundation of the world, knowing every sin you would ever commit, He has ensured that nothing or no one can thwart His eternal plan. And when it says that, that means there is no boss, no parent, no spouse, there is no unbeliever, anywhere who can so confine you or restrict you from following Christ as your heart would want to do that would ever cause Christ to reject you. There is no former religious organization, there is no former religious leader that now condemns you that could ever cause God to condemn you. And when it says, if God is for us, who is against us? My brother, sister in Christ, the who includes you. The who includes you. You did not earn your way into God's grace. And my friend, you cannot send your way out. Now anyone who hears that is saying, once you come to Christ, you can live any way you want and still go to heaven. Is probably a stranger to grace in the first place. Brother, I'm attempting to speak pastorally to that person who wants God and his salvation more than anything. They don't take these things for granted. They don't presume on the grace of God. They want God and his salvation more than anything, and they are following hard after Christ, but they are terrified that because of some particularly heinous sin in their past or because of their inability to conquer some sin now, that ultimately the patience of Christ is going to be exhausted, and at the end He will slam the door of heaven in your face. And they're terrified of that. My brother or sister, you did not earn your way into heaven. 
you will not send your way out. If you want Christ, He wants you. Among the greatest evidences that Christ wants you and receives you is your willingness to receive Him. The fact that you want Him. Because you know what? You wouldn't want Him if He hadn't already had you. You were in darkness. Jesus said you love darkness rather than light. You would not come to Christ. But by grace he changed your heart. And gave you a heart of flesh, the Bible says, instead of a heart of stone. And gave you the Holy Spirit who, remember, prays for you. And one of the works of the Holy Spirit is he gives you longings for Christ. You want Christ. And your wanting Christ is one of the greatest evidences that you already have Christ. And so regardless of the sin that terrifies you, your inability to conquer, though you try and you pray for removal of it, the fact that you want Him means He wants you. If God is for us, who is against us? Well, let me close with these practical words now. First of all, I want to call you to Paul's example here and how helpful it is. And to say that we need to do what he did to learn to reason out and rest upon what the Scripture says is true. To reason out and rest upon what the Bible says is true, regardless of what we see, regardless of what we think, regardless of what we feel. So Paul said, all right, I've had some pretty rough things happen to me. And I sure prayed for God's protection. I didn't want to be stoned. I didn't want to be beaten. I didn't want to be whipped. I didn't want all these things to happen, but God allowed them to happen. But he's given me the Holy Spirit who prays for me when I can't pray. Or I don't know what to pray. He prays for me. He takes everything that ever happens to me, even the worst things that have ever happened to me, turns into my ultimate good and his glory. And before the foundation of the world, knowing everything, every sin I would ever commit, knowing how I would persecute the church, every sin I would ever commit, he loved me anyway, predestined me to be like Christ. When I was going on the road to Damascus to put Christians to death, he called me. And in a way that made Jesus irresistibly beautiful to me, others around me didn't receive the same kind of call. He had no obligation. In fact, I deserved only hell. But then he gave me credit for having lived the very life of the Jesus I was persecuting. And he's ensured I will be like Christ forever and ever. Hmm. Now those things are true. So, what does that tell me? <laughs> what do we say to these things? Well, it tells me this. God is for me. <laughs> no matter what happens to me, I know God is for me. Folks, that's a great example. I had a friend recently put it this way. He often asks himself, what do you feel, what do you think, what do you know? What do you feel, what do you think, what do you know? I feel unloved by God. What do you think? I feel unloved by God because I, I think he's not hearing my prayers. What do you know? I know that he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I know that he loves me because of the cross. What do you feel? What do you see? I mean, what do you feel? What do you think? What do you know? I, I feel guilty before God. Why, 
Because I, why do you think that? Because I can't conquer this sin. What do you know? What is the truth? The truth is verse 1 here. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the truth. Over and over, I, every day I'm having to ask myself, what is the truth? I feel this. I see this. I think this. But what is the truth? I know what your circumstances tell you. I know what you feel. But what is the truth? truth we're emphasizing right now is God is for us. Second, when God is for you, He is for you forever. If He was before you from the foundation of the world, knowing every sin you would ever commit, you can be sure He is for you forever. So my brother, sister in Christ, don't doubt His love. Don't doubt His love. Several years ago, I was reading a book by the greatest of the Puritan theologians, John Owen. A little book called Communion with God. And I was reading along, and nothing had really struck me dramatically until I got to page 13. Then I read one sentence which flipped on tears like a light switch. Here's the sentence. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness, unkindness you can do to Him is, what do you think He's going to say? The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him, is not to believe that He loves you. Not to believe that He loves you. His Holy Spirit prays for you when you can't pray. His Holy Spirit prays for you when you don't know what to pray. And he prays for you, prays the very will of God, and does so in such a way that everything that ever happens to you, he doesn't just neutralize the pain someday. You don't just look forward to neutralizing the memory. He's going to bless you for every one of those things far greater than you can even imagine so that you will thank him in heaven forever for the worst things that ever happened to you now. And before the foundation of the world, knowing every sinful thing you would ever do, even after professing Christ, he loved you anyway and predestined you to be like Jesus and called you when you were his enemy and you hated him and you were dead in trespasses and sins and he called you to himself and gave you credit for having lived the very life of Jesus and ensured you'll be like Jesus forever and ever and you wonder if he loves you? <laughs> what greater proof could he give? Let you win the, pure, the, 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 the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes? That would be a better proof. When God is for you, He's for you forever. So don't doubt His love. The obvious question now as we conclude is, is God for you? Is God for you? He is for all who will come to Christ. But realize He is against those who won't. He is your enemy. You made him your enemy. And you may look around the room and say, well, you know what? I'm not a follower of Christ, but I wouldn't trade places with hardly anybody in this room. Things are going pretty well. God must be for me enough. But my friend, you will discover some days you stand before him in judgment that God is your enemy. You made him your enemy. And if God is against you, who can be for you? But if you will come to Christ, even right now, 
no matter who you are, no matter what you've done or how many times you've done it. You may have been fearful of coming in today, fearful that all the thunder and lightning at that time was, was indicative of the judgment of God that you would dare come to church. And you're fearful this place might fall in over you this morning. He'll receive even you. No matter who you are or what you've done or how many times you've done it. I can stand and in his name say come and welcome to Jesus Christ. But you may have been someone who's been in church every Sunday of your life. But if your life were exposed it would be the biggest scandal in Baton Rouge. He'll receive even you. He receives self-righteous people too. He receives all who will sincerely come to him. When you come to Christ from then on, regardless of whether ever you get the house you want or the spouse you want or the job you want or the income you want or anything else you want, regardless of those things, if you come to Christ, you get God. And if God is for you, who is against you? Oh, God, how grateful we are for the Bible. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to come for such as us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for enlightening our eyes, for revealing Christ as glorious to us. Thank you, Father, for the church, for the fellowship of the saints. Oh, Father, we love you. Thank you for all these good and unspeakably glorious gifts. And I pray that right now you would cause Jesus to be seen as irresistibly beautiful by every person here. Cause us to want to run to Christ in our hearts and to ask you for your mercy in Jesus' name. For indeed we do ask this and ask that you would bring much lasting fruit from these three days together here. Asking it in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.